This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Always a hot topic on this show anytime we get into it. Also in the country right now. Did you see those comments on the weekend from Bill Blair? the federal minister for organized crime reduction and border security. He said that the uh, Justin Trudeau government has taken no option off the table as they consider new gun control measures, especially outlawing guns that are designed to hunt people, as he put it. So they're talking about a handgun ban, maybe an assault weapon ban. That's our hot question of the day today. Should the government ban handguns and assault rifles? Would you say no, that's going too far? Or would you say yes, nobody needs these guns? At CKNW on Twitter is where you can vote on this question today. At CKNW on Twitter. While you are there, please give me a follow. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. I will retweet the hot question of the day. We've got a great guest coming up on that later on the show. Lots of opportunity for you, you to have your own say on the open line as well. Phone me on the buzz line, too, and leave me a voicemail there. We may play it later on the show. 604-331-BUZZ is the number to call. 604-331-2899. All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith in for Simi. Here's a headline that caught my eye the other day. Article in Business in Vancouver magazine. It says how the BC economy could possibly be hurt if we clean up money laundering. Wow. It's here's, here's what it says. The BC's economy is partly supported by proceeds of crime. So the whole province could suffer financially if the BC government cleans up dirty money. It quotes a retail analyst in here. His, his name is uh, Craig Patterson. Check this quote out. This is amazing. It says, losing Chinese money and laundered money would be catastrophic. It also quotes the Fraser Institute saying that, well, obviously nobody wants l- dirty money around, but let's be honest about it. You got This could have a trickle-down effect and hurt the whole economy. If you start cleaning up all this dirty money, that caught my eye on the weekend. It also caught the eye of Attorney General David Eby. If you if you checked out his tweets on the weekend, (laughs) pretty funny. He says this is like saying that if you uh, if you crack down on gangs, you could have layoffs from bullet retailers and gun stores. I mean, you know, he had a number of uh, other tweets and and things to say about it. Well, let's, let's talk to him right now. Attorney General David Eby on the line. Hi, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. So what did you think when you saw that headline? Like, okay, if we clean up dirty money, it potentially hurts the economy. Isn't that just simply a fact, or do you, or do you challenge the veracity of that? Well, I, you know, I, on one hand, I welcome the, finally the honesty about what's been going on here. Uh, you know, for a long time, people said, there's no issue. We don't know what, uh, what the government's talking about. We don't know what EB's talking about. This is probably uh, racist. This is probably a terrible thing that they're doing. And now, now it's like, okay, well, yeah, there, there is money laundering. We're making a lot of money selling uh, luxury handbags to criminals uh, and their associates. So we'd prefer if you didn't stop it. And I started out kind of laughing at it. And now I'm just kind of 
pissed off, frankly, uh, that, uh, that the audacity of people to come out and say, you know, actually, we, we want to build uh, British Columbia's economy on dirty money. We want to have boutique services for thugs and criminals, selling fentanyl, killing people. Uh, and the Fraser Institute's out there saying this is a great idea. Uh, you need to be really careful about cracking down on crime because a lot of our uh, economy is based on crime. What I mean, what are they talking about? Well, aren't they just simply saying the truth? I'm, I'm not certain they're saying that this is a bad thing to clean up money laundering or to go after criminals. I don't think anyone could really be opposed to that. But I think they're just saying the truth of the matter is that it could have an economic impact. I mean, you've said that yourself about cleaning up money laundering in the casinos. The government's going to make less money off of the casino profits, right? Well, I mean, isn't that, the, isn't that just a fact? Absolutely. And in fact, uh, we know that uh, that revenue from table games is down about $30 million right. uh, from where right. it was projected to be. And uh, I expect uh, that uh, if uh, Maureen Maloney's uh, projections around uh, the impact of money laundering on the real estate market are correct, that our crackdowns will lead to a decline in real estate prices as they are right now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and absolutely, Peter German identified specifically, also mentioned in the article, luxury uh, goods and pianos and luxury cars. Um, all of these pieces absolutely could be impacted. But but Mike, that we can't get away from the tone of the article here. Yeah. The tone of the yeah. article was uh, that this is going to uh, that this this is not a positive thing. That was not the tone of the article, or that this is a necessary thing, or that here are the likely consequences in it, and this is a worthwhile enterprise. The tone of the article was uh, NDP government hurts economy. And uh, it, really, it really shows uh, how entrenched some of this activity is. Okay, you were quite withering in your, your criticism of this with your tweets on the weekend, uh, basically mocking this article and, and coming up with some alternative headlines like cancer doctors fear for their careers with crackdown on tobacco, bullet sale decline could impact gun store jobs if government cracks down on gangs. What, what is your point with these, these tweets? You're just trying to point out the, what, the ridiculous argument? Or what, what are you trying to achieve there? Well, it doesn't, like, there are so many areas uh, where governments regulate uh, that uh, harms potential economic activity. And the reason for government yeah. to regulate uh, is, to, uh, is to balance out uh, that economic activity with the harms that it's creating. So there's no question. Uh, that BC's government, uh, through their budgets, that the British Columbia economy has benefited from money laundering. But, um, but government regulating money laundering and, and cracking down on it and cracking down on, on criminals using our economy to launder their proceeds uh, at the expense of local families, at the expense of the overdose crisis, it, 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 it startles me uh, that people would be openly questioning whether it's a good idea uh, to crack down on it. Okay, is it is it reasonable or fair and accurate to say though that with an aggressive crackdown on money laundering, there will be economic impacts? There will on be. The province? There will be. What, and and I would the, argue what are the actually what are the that impacts the, in your mind? The impacts would be positive. So the the negative impacts are uh, real estate prices likely affected, luxury car sales likely affected, luxury goods sales likely affected. These are all the areas canvassed by Dr. German and Dr. Maloney in their reports and negatively affected. But when we look at what the consequences of sky-high real estate prices have been for other sectors in the economy, you talk to someone who's working, especially in the Lower Mainland, you talk to someone who's working in tech, you talk to someone who's working in the film industry, you talk to someone who's working in tourism, they can't find staff that at UBC, SFU, they can't find staff to come and work because right. uh, they can't afford to live in Metro Vancouver anymore. And so uh, we have built up one uh, 
frankly malignant, to extend my cancer metaphor, area of our economy, and it is sucking up all the life out of other areas of the economy. So uh, we're taking action to create the space for those other areas to fill in. So there will definitely be negative downturns in luxury goods, as the business in Vancouver article points out. Uh, but what it doesn't point out is uh, the positive impacts that could come from more reasonable real estate prices in other areas of our economy. Speaking to Attorney General David Eby, you announced a public inquiry into money laundering last month to be headed up by uh, B.C. Supreme Court Justice Austin Cullen. What is the status of this inquiry? When, when will it start hearing evidence? Well, Justice Cullen is currently assembling his team. So the team for a public inquiry involves a commission, uh, team of commission lawyers. Uh, that work together to, to with the commissioner to put together the agenda around witnesses and to ask the witnesses questions and so on. They need office space and administration support and all that basic stuff. So all that's happening. I expect that to happen over the summer. Uh, we'll be getting an update from uh, Commissioner Cullen about progress on that in my ministry. And uh, we haven't got a date yet from the commissioner when they'll begin to hear witnesses. But I think this fall is, uh, is when I expect uh, that they'll be up and running. Do you speak frequently to him um, with regard to how this inquiry is being set up? No, uh, the commissioner operates independently of government. Uh, they have a liaison with my staff in the Ministry of Attorney General, so they have the resources they need. Uh, and there certainly will be contact, but it will be through uh, counsel the Ministry of Attorney General and, uh, and we'll be providing the support, but making sure it stays arm's length from government. Would it be reasonable to assume that we, if they take the summer to get staffed up and there's a lot of organization that goes into something like this, that perhaps in the fall we might start to see testimony? Yeah, that's my expectation, yeah. although I haven't uh, heard directly from the commissioner yet, is that they would begin to hear from folks, from witnesses in the fall, um, and, uh, and that they would be up and running by then. What do you hope will be achieved with this inquiry? Well, a couple pieces. Uh, one is uh, to, to know who knew what when and, uh, and how this whole process uh, evolved uh, and how this uh, issue of money laundering evolved in our province. Political accountability certainly is one piece. Uh, the other, and, and I think the more important piece uh, for government, is to, un, uh, to rip the lid off the areas of the economy that have been used in this way and the, and the loopholes that are being exploited that we don't know about. Um, you know, I was shocked to find out about the provincial government program that refunded PST to people exporting luxury cars, that that had gone up uh, hundreds and hundreds of percent, <laughs> thousands of cars being luxury cars being shipped overseas in a process that appears to enable trade-based money laundering. We didn't know a thing about that until Dr. German's work, and I suspect there will be more revelations like that as they continue their work. Just lastly, when you say political accountability, which which is a phrase I've heard you use several times, I'm, I'm sure any members of the BC Liberal Party who are listening to this right now are just probably gnashing their teeth saying, well, this is just designed to pin the blame on the previous government and, and to apportion political blame and damage on the Liberals. How do you respond to that? Well, I'm sure the Liberals will be held accountable for whatever the Liberals need to be held accountable for. But when I say political accountability, it's not just politicians. I also mean accountability to the public. And, and that's all of the agencies that let us down here. I mean, FinTrack, uh, who was supposed to be uh, staying on top of, who was receiving all of these reports, uh, uh, the uh, uh, police uh, who were supposed to be uh, uh, paying attention to this, uh, the regulator, uh, what happened within the gaming policy enforcement branch within the public service. So all of these uh, pieces, they are not necessarily all politicians, but political accountability, accountability, to my mind, means accountability for decisions that were made to the public. And speaking of FinTrack, we've already heard from the federal government that they're supportive of, of this inquiry. Do you expect full cooperation from them or could we get some a nasty surprise down the road if the feds decide, well, our people can't testify at this this thing because it's provincial and, and it's not it, 
it doesn't we don't you guys don't have jurisdiction over that or do you have a do you have a clear uh, indication from the feds that they're in uh, totally all in on this well, we have a commitment from the uh, federal uh, Liberal Party to cooperate with the inquiry and, and to ensure that British Columbia is able to access the information we need. And I haven't had any indication from either the Conservatives, the NDP, or the Greens uh, in the event of a majority or minority government involving some other political parties that that would change. I think that I hope that all parties are equally on side that this is a nonpartisan issue and we need to get to the bottom of this, not just for BC's economy's future, but also for Canada's international reputation as a place that won't tolerate money laundering and criminal activity. Thanks for taking the time today. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. That is David Eby. He's BC's Attorney General. Gun control now. This is going to be a key issue, I think, in the looming federal election this fall. And you can tell that it's going to become an issue because of the comments coming out right now from the Justin Trudeau government. Bill Blair, the lead cabinet minister on this file, on the weekend putting out a statement that the government has not ruled out any measures to clamp down on guns that are, quote, designed to hunt people, unquote. Here's what he says exactly. Assault-style rifles are military weapons designed to hunt people, not animals, in the most efficient manner possible that maximizes the body count at minimum effort. Unquote. Bill Blair, it's in the statement on the weekend. There are rumors the government is considering a ban on handguns and what they call assault-style rifles. Get set for this issue to emerge as an election issue, I believe. Let's check in with Rob, uh, Rod Giltaka now, CEO and Executive Director, Canadian Coalition of Firearms Rights. Rod, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. What do you think about what you're hearing coming from the federal government the last few days on this file? Um, I think it's terrible. And uh, Bill Blair was the police chief in, uh, in Toronto for a long time. He knows better than this, but he's now become a politician. Uh, the minister of, um, I can't remember his title, it's long, and, uh, and, <laughs> and no one's had that title before, but it's, he's really propagandizing now. And unfortunately uh, for him, real leadership, uh, especially on something like the firearm file, requires honesty and courage and not the opposite. He's the Minister of Border Security and Organized Crime Reduction is, is mm-hmm. his title. I agree with you. That's a long title. Let me ask you this. What do you think is, is unfortunate about what he's saying? What is it that you take issue with there? Well, in Canada, we don't, you know, and I know this is inflammatory for people to listen to, but any criminal use of firearms in Canada is actually quite a small problem. Now, certainly when we do have a problem, when people are shot, I mean, it's horrible. And no one's ever argued against that. But on average, we have typically in a nation of 36 million, we have around 180 firearms related uh, homicides and police, any honest police, uh, um, police um, person will tell you that it's almost always a result of the drug trade or other criminal activity other than the shooting. So I think when we talk about uh, solutions to these very complex socioeconomic problems, uh, we have to be honest and, uh, you know, a gun ban is is the furthest thing from a solution because uh, guns are already banned for criminals to possess. Okay, when Bill Blair says that the government is considering a ban on assault-style rifles, how do you react to that? Well, it's fear-mongering, and it's and again, it's 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 just trying to fool people into uh, being 
afraid of guns that have been in the hands of Canadians for decades. Well, I mean, guns have been around in Canada since the 1500s, but semi-autos have been around for 100 years. Um, right. So do people, do people do unfortunate things with semi-autos? Absolutely. But that doesn't justify taking firearms away from everybody who's not doing any of the shooting. Okay, and a, a semi-automatic rifle, is, as you just mentioned, uh, is a rifle. I mean, you're the expert, not me, but my understanding of a semi-automatic rifle is one where you you load a clip onto a rifle, which I understand is five bullets. Is that right? Right. So a magazine. Right. So in Canada, we can only have five rounds five, uh, right. in a magazine for a, um, a center-fire semi-automatic rifle or shotgun. Right, and you'd have and one in the chamber, right? Right, yeah. So, so, six, so yes. So six bullets total, and in a semi-automatic, you pull the trigger, you fire the gun, and then it automatically reloads, pull the trigger again, and it fires another bullet. That's a semi-automatic weapon. An, a fully automatic weapon is like a machine gun where you, you pull the trigger and, and it, it's, it fires a continuous spray of bullets. That's not a, that, those are illegal. A, a fully automatic weapons are illegal. Is that right? They've been prohibited in Canada since 1977. Right. So when he talks about a ban on assault weapons, I mean, this is where the, the issue, I think, gets critical for people to understand these terms and what these terms mean. Like when he's talking about an assault weapon, quote unquote, he's talking about a semi-automatic rifle, semi-automatic rifle that some people who are into hunting do use to go out and hunt a deer or whatever. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. The AR-15, because this is the this is the poster child of the of the black scary rifle, right? The uh, so-called assault weapon. And of course, this is a complete misnomer. But you know, we can talk about that after. In the United States, there's there's ten to twelve million AR-15s, and they're used for hunting constantly. They're completely inappropriate, uh, an appropriate firearm for hunting. And but in Canada, we can use other semi-autos, just not that specific one. And we haven't had a problem with hunters and semi-autos. So it's again, it's this kind of political manipulation, I mean, we really need honest leaders if we're going to solve our problems at any point. Okay, what about a handgun? Why Why would anyone need to have a handgun? The government's talking about a possible handgun ban here. Well, uh, there are three legitimate reasons to own a handgun in Canada. So that's target or sport shooting, collecting, and inheritance. So those are the three legitimate reasons. And a lot of Canadians, about 500,000, uh, own handguns. And uh, there's up to a million handguns in Canada. So I guess the, the, the real question is, how many people that have licenses and registered handguns are committing criminal shootings? And unless that number is similar to the number of people that hold those handguns, I guess we should consider dealing with our crime problem and not the fact that people legitimately uh, are licensed and own handguns. So again, more misdirection for a political purpose. Speaking of Rod Giltaka, he's with the Canadian Coalition of Firearms Rights, and we're talking about the politics of gun control here in this country. And I detect, Rod, that the Liberals clearly want to put this issue on the table in advance of an election and hope that it emerges as a, as a wedge issue with the Conservatives. If, if the Conservatives stand up and say, no, we, we don't support a handgun ban, I think they would be very happy with that and turn this into a political issue. Do you think it's a, do you think it's a big political issue in an election in the fall? Um, it's well, I think that gun control is their Hail Mary. They failed miserably on every file. They've caused, um, you know, political instability unlike anything we've, we've ever seen. I mean, that's if you pay, really pay attention. And most people don't pay attention, nor should they have to. We should have honest politicians. 
But yeah, I think that's uh, this is all they have. They're they're mired in alleged corruption. They're just yeah, they're failing on, on every angle. And uh, they're just trying to scare people and shore up any support they can for uh, for October. And Rod, thank you for coming on the show. Anytime, Mike. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's Rod Giltaka. He's the head of the Canadian Coalition of Firearms Rights. Let's talk about impaired driving laws in our province right now. And fascinating story of a woman named Leanne Lowry who was told by the police that someone had seen her leave a restaurant after getting into a pickup truck and driving away after drinking. They came to her sister's home hours later and administered a breath test. Did you know the police can do that? What about the legalities of it? I'll tell you what, it's fascinating in the law around this. Let's talk about it now with my guest. Jerry Steele. He's a trial lawyer with Jeremy Carr and Associates in Victoria. I'm very pleased you can make the time. Jerry, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on the air with you. Thank you for coming on. Let's talk about your client, Leanne Lowry. Can you uh, just go back and just give us a sort of a Reader's Digest version here of what happened to her? Sure. Well, she contacted our office uh, after she was given an, an immediate roadside prohibition. And in this case, she had been out with her boyfriend at a pub. Uh, they were not there very long, and then they, they left and went home. So while she's at her house, she's consuming some alcohol by the pool. Now she gets a call from the police that they have an urgent or pressing personal matter that they need to discuss with her. So she thinks that her something has happened to a family member or something terrible, uh, and the police showed up at her house, five of them showed up at her house, uh, and demanded that she provide a breast sample into one of those handheld roadside screening devices. And now, now the, the the police give a time estimate, and, and from our understanding, they say an hour. It's more like after two hours she had been home. Uh, and the, the the crazy thing about this, Mike, is the the description didn't match. I mean, they the person it was an anonymous. Apparently, they had an anonymous tip. Okay, with no verification. No, we no we have no idea where this tip came from or who it was. Uh, but yet they proceeded to demand that she provide a breast sample. And this is after she's been home and tells them that she's been drinking for, you know, had a couple beers over the last few hours. But they still proceed mm. with the breast sample anyway. Okay, uh, so she had been home for two hours. She had been drinking since she got home. And the police proceed to give her a breath test, and, and she failed the breath test. Is that correct? That's right. So she failed yeah. the breath test. And, and the, I mean, there was a video that was circulating online. You can see she was quite confused, and she's asking the police, you know, I don't understand what's going on here. Uh, and, and they're being quite aggressive with her. Uh, and then they, I mean, one of the more sinister aspects of this case is that at one point she asks for a second. They're, they're required to offer a second test on the machine. So she fails the first one. They, uh, they're required to give her a second one. She asks for a second one at one point, and they don't give it to her. Uh, they um, and they write in the reports and more and, it, and more than one place they write that um, that she did not request a second test, which they're required to do by law. Okay, what happened with her case? So she, our office, my office, Jen Taren did a fabulous job on the uh, on the appeal. We went to uh, Road Safety BC and we were successful in having it overturned because of the video. If she had not, she was uh, had the wherewithal to pull out her camera and her phone and start recording. And if we didn't have that, I don't think she would have been successful. But the the dark side to this, Mike, is is around the law itself that the police yeah. were able to do this. So they they can come and uh, in into your or they can ask any driver that they think has been operating a vehicle within three hours under the law to provide a breast sample. Okay, uh, so they could come to your home 
and say, we believe you were drinking and driving three hours ago and administer a breath test and you could be found in contravention of the law. That is absolutely correct. And, but, and what, even, but, in this, but in this case, if she's saying, well, hang on a second, I've, I've been drinking in my own home after I left my car. I haven't been drinking behind the wheel. That doesn't matter? Well, in the old days, before December, it did matter. Here's a darker aspect of this law that was passed along with the mandatory screening demands that they've approved in December, and that is it is a crime. Under the criminal code right now, it is a crime to have a breath, a blood alcohol concentration of over 08 within two hours of operating a vehicle. Let that sink in. That is staggering that the police can show up two hours later and determine you, you blow in that machine. That is a crime under the criminal code. Okay. You also have had a, your, your law firm has also covered other cases of people with uh, challenging uh, BC's impaired driving laws. And I understand you have a constitutional challenge against the law. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, we we filed a constitutional case against uh, the mandatory uh, alcohol demand or mandatory screening demand that they brought in back in December, uh, which is the demand that they used on Lee Lowry and Norma McLeod. That is the one that is been the, the the subject of the constitutional challenge. So, the one other uh, point I should note on this, Mike, is the. The police in the Lowry case showed up and made a mandatory screening demand, meaning that they didn't need any grounds. That's the basis they used it. And, and, and under the law, they don't need any grounds at all. Uh, what, where they went off was that they actually didn't have the legal authority to make that demand. They can only make a demand on a driver who is actually operating a vehicle at the time. So, so we are challenging. The, we are saying that uh, i mean i'm of the view that these new mandatory alcohol screening demands are an affront to canadian democracy uh, they are, they're just so far over the edge i mean they 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 police have absolutely no require no grounds at all whatsoever to stop anybody and make them blow and as we are seeing now case after case after case are are coming up where people are being unfairly penalized and punished for various reasons because they can't actually blow so with all the, the constitutionality aside, and we're, we're saying that this is an affront to Sections 8 and 9 of the Charter, which prevent arbitrary detention and, and unreasonable searches. Okay, speaking to lawyer Jerry Steele about impaired driving laws in British Columbia, you mentioned the name of another one of your uh, clients, Norma McLeod. Uh, people might remember her case. She's the 76-year-old uh, cancer survivor who had half of her, the roof of her mouth removed because she has... Uh, mouth cancer and said that she was unable to blow into uh, a roadside screening device. What is the status of that case and the constitutional challenge you have around that? Well, uh, that's before the courts. I mean, we're still awaiting for the, the government appears to be dragging their feet somewhat on, on responding to this. Um, I, I, I'm a, understandably so, um, but they're, uh, it's, it's pending. We're trying to get it into court as quick as we, as we can so that we can get this heard. Uh, I mean, the faster we do that, the faster we'll yeah. be able to stop you know, these, these abuses that are happening with people being unfairly penalized. Okay, what would you say to someone who would say that Drunk driving causes carnage on our roads. Hundreds, thousands of people killed from drunk drivers. And that if you've got nothing to hide, you got nothing to fear. If you if you if you're sober behind the wheel, then you got nothing to worry about. If you've been drinking and you've been behind the wheel, then I don't have any problem with with the police going after you aggressively. How do you respond to that? 
Well, that's a great question. And let me say right on the outset, I am not a fan or in favor of drunk driving at all, period. Uh Absolutely. But I am a, a fan of due process. And, and there simply is not. And I mean, the, the, it, with, this, with this regime in B.C., I mean, the question you ask is terrific because it highlights some of the differences that we have in B.C. as opposed to Alberta. So the, uh, with the immediate roadside prohibitions, there, there's no judicial oversight. So there's no real if the, 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 the safety mechanisms are either inadequate or non-existent. So we, uh, in a criminal case, like if this had been the old days, and like the Norman McLeod had blown into that device and couldn't provide a, a breast sample, well, then what would happen is it would have been forwarded to the Crown Council, who would have actually been able to to review the file, and likely it would have gone nowhere. Uh, you know, as uh, and it would, she would have been exonerated in a court of law. So uh, the, the the as it stands right now. Or, Right now, they need no grounds. I mean, it, before this law came in, and this is why I think it's excessive in answer to your question, is that the, the, low, the, the standard was so low. It was so low. All they needed was re, what was called reasonable suspicion to make somebody blow. And, and, and in order to get there, they needed almost nothing. An odor of alcohol, uh, an admission from the driver, a phone call, somebody saying they called and saw somebody driving drunk or drinking, uh, smell of alcohol in the car, bad driving, anything. But they just had to have something. Right now, they need nothing. So yeah, in, right? in the in the case of your client Leanne Lowry, she does acknowledge that she had been at a pub and then drove from the pub, right? And did she say she had what one drink at the pub? That's Is right. That- That's right. So she has one drink and goes home, uh, and then she said that she had a couple drinks by the pool, and she offered to show the police what she'd been drinking. She she invited them in, and they they were having none of it. Did they? What happened to her after she blew over? Did they take her? Did they take her car away? Yes, her truck. So, yes, they did. So she blew. She blew a fail, which yeah. uh, I mean, there's. Uh, it, by the way, it's possible to blow a fail on those ASDs, which it should uh, be another concern. But that's a different for a different day. Um, but she blew a fail, and then they, uh, they 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 she asked for the second test, which they didn't give her, and they took her car. So they impounded her car for for thirty days. She lost her license for three months. She was facing a $500 rein, uh, penalty and then a $250 reinstatement fee. Uh, bare minimum, she was going to have to take what's called the Responsible Driver Course, or course Program. That's another uh, just under $1,000. So the, 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 the penalties add up very quickly in this. Okay, and you were able to have that overturned. Did she get all that money back? Uh, she get so it was Jen Jen Turner in my office did the did the appeal so we uh, we got the we were able to get the uh, she they have the towing costs and the yeah. uh, towing fees they we get that back um, and then she gets to get her license back and the other penalties uh, go away so she didn't have to do the course or pay the fine um, but a lot of people are if you have any points basically more than two points on your license in the last five years anyone who gets one of these will likely have to deal with uh, ignition interlock program as well which can also be thousands of dollars when do you expect your constitutional challenge to be heard in court we're we're pushing them right now to get it on we want to get it on as quickly as it can and we're we're you know because it's a it's a a bringing the federal government in we're hoping to have it heard by the end of the year i think we're aiming somewhere around october november if we can get it on i mean if we get on sooner we will we're following it very closely. Thank you for coming on today. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. Thanks so much for having me on the air. I appreciate it. Jerry Steele, he is a trial lawyer with Jeremy Carr and Associates in Victoria. Let's talk about the Trans Mountain Pipeline now and other pipeline projects across Canada. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation on a tour right now highlighting the tax 
benefits from these projects. Franco Terrazano is with me in the studio. He is the Alberta Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Frank's, Franco, thank you for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me on. Also got Chris Sims standing by as well. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me on too. You're welcome, Chris. These guys are sharing a mic. That's why I'm laughing here. Uh, Chris Sims is the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. You guys just finished an event on the front lawn of the BC Legislature, and I see you've unveiled a, what do you call this, a tax counter? <laughs> what, like I, I've seen your uh, your counter for the, uh, the the national debt. Yeah, the debt this clock. Is, this is the debt clock. This is the one that keeps spinning around and it keeps going up, up, up all the time. But now you've got a similar spin on that for, for uh, tax revenue from pipelines, right? Yeah. So okay, our tell me about that. Our counter is based off the CTF's uh, famous uh, debt counter. Yeah. And so right now we're on a we're on a cross-country pipeline tour and we're talking about the benefits of pipelines uh, to taxpayers. You know, okay. normally when, when you hear pipelines, you hear benefits. The first thing I think that comes to mind for most Canadians is the additional jobs or the dif- uh, additional economic growth, but in like one or two portions of the country. So now what we're showing is like, well, jobs are an important aspect of pipelines, but governments also lose out on a lot of money when pipelines aren't being built and when we're not getting full value for our resources. So that's the message that we're taking coast to coast. Uh, we started out in Ottawa. We did the East Coast. Today, we're in Victoria, right outside of that beautiful legislature building. Okay. So you guys have calculated how much tax revenue potentially flows to government from these pipelines, right? Yeah, absolutely. Tell me so, about that. So uh, what, what we did is we used data that was published by the Parliamentary Budget Officer to look yeah. at how much additional federal government revenue would be collected if that oil price differential was lower because more pipelines uh, were built. So between uh, since 2013, that pipeline deficit is costing Canadian taxpayers over $6 billion. Now, here's where the clock thing comes in because that number is going up by $3.6 million every single day. Now, now, that's a lot of money in terms of different services that we could buy, right? So if we did have enough pipeline capacity between 2013 and 2023, we would have enough money to build at least six new hospitals based on a Metro Vancouver hospital costs, or to fully fund over 26,000 new teaching positions for 10 years in British Columbia, or even even to exempt every single resident uh, residents of Victoria from paying federal taxes for four years. So, I mean, we're leaving a lot of money on the table because of because uh, because of the pipeline and, constraints. And where does all this tax revenue come from? Is it because you would get a higher price for the oil if we can sell it in Asia? Well, well, that's it. Well, that's, well, that's pretty much absolutely it. So what we're looking at is specifically what we're looking at is how the lack of pipelines has increased the differential between, uh, the price of oil in Canada, the, the Western Canada select price and the, uh, Western Texas intermediate price. Now there's always a differential because of transportation costs, because of quality differences, but now we're facing a higher than, than normal, uh, differential because of the lack of pipelines. So what we looked at with the data in that parliamentary budget officer, uh, report is, well, how much additional revenue would the federal government collect if that price differential was lower. So if we receive full value for our oil, which we yeah. could do if we were able to reach, yeah. if we weren't so dependent on the United States. So now we're talking about higher income taxes, higher corporate income taxes, even uh, even higher sales taxes and uh, what they call other revenue. Okay. Here in British Columbia, of course, we're very well versed in the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline Project, but you guys are talking about other pipeline projects, right? Yeah. We're, so we're ta- what, other, what other projects are there? Well, we're talking about the need to have a workable regulatory system and to get these large uh, business projects built, right? And I mean, it's pretty self-evident right now that we don't have that, right? Like, I'm sure that all, all your listeners are sure of the, the Trans Mountain debacle that's been, been going on right now and the difficulties there. But we're not just talking about Trans Mountain, right? We've seen, we've seen issues with uh, Northern Gateway. 
right? We're, we've seen issues with the proposed uh, tanker ban, which yeah. obviously would limit uh, future projects like that. But then we're also talking about projects like Energy East. And, yeah. and now I'm not sure how familiar your listeners are, but um, the regulatory goalposts were shifted yeah. Uh, during the review process. Yeah. Um, so, so right here, you know, we're looking at a workable regulatory system for not just Trans Mountain, but for, for these future large projects. Okay, let me switch over to, to Chris Sims, who's the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Um, you've been meeting with some provincial premiers as, as you guys travel across the country on, on this thing. Are you hoping to meet with Premier John Horgan on this? We'd love to. The door is always What do you open. think the chances are that he's going to meet with you guys? You never know. He Probably is a- zero. I was zero, I would say. <laughs> he's zero. A, he's a very friendly and intelligent man, and he's got some time now, right? The ledge isn't sitting. <laughs> okay. So the door is open, and yeah. for real. What would you tell him if you were sitting across from him right now? I would appeal to the premier's uh, sense of labor. I would say mm. you must have steel workers, pipe fitters, crane operators, truckers, banging your door down right now saying, where is my job? Why can't we twin this pipeline? Why are you attacking resources? I believe in his heart of hearts that he is pro-resources. We can see that with LNG. We can see that with Site C. And I would say we got to cross over here. We got to cross this river and you have to agree that we see this as a jobs and a resources issue and take a look at the taxes. And as my colleague pointed out, those six hospitals, those aren't a small one. That would be St. Paul's. That's the equivalent of six St. Paul's hospitals. But would all this tax revenue, though, it wouldn't all flow to the B.C. government. You're talking about all levels of government, are you? Yes, yes. And so this is the federal uh, take of the taxes, right? And that's about $12 billion between 2013 and 2023. And if you calculate that down, that's what that looks like. What do you say to, you know, if Horgan was here right now, he would say that the reason that this government opposes this pipeline is that it's actually potentially bad for business. If there is a catastrophic spill and it wipes out fisheries and tourism and we're faced with a massive cleanup bill and it's a total disaster, right? And that would be an economic catastrophe as well mm-hmm. if there was ever kind of a terrible spill like that. Do you guys calculate that in, into your risk benefit analysis here? Like, you know, okay, yeah, we can make a ton of money if this thing goes through. But what if it goes wrong and there's a spill? Well, you know what? I mean, environmental concerns are genuine concerns. And I mean, these are eco, uh, environmental and economic concerns, which they are. And look, if there is a spill, the company should be held responsible as they should. But now we're talking about, you have to, you you can't just have one or the other. I mean, it's not just like one development versus protecting just the environment, right? We need to be able to have a balance here. And and what we're seeing is, is we're not having that balance. We're missing that balance. We need a workable regulatory system that takes these environmental concerns into consideration that if the business messes up, the business pays for it, right? But we also can't just say, well, we're banning development, right? We yeah. can't, we can't do that. I mean, how are we going to, how are we going to progress as a nation, as a society to, to pay for a lot of different things in terms of the calculation itself? The calculation just looks at that price differential. Yeah. And how uh, additional pipelines would benefit. Like, so that is the focus of the calculation. What is the current status of the pipeline right now? Like, it's essentially in the, in the court of, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his cabinet, right? They did another review of the pipeline and they, they were anticipating an announcement from the Trudeau cabinet at some point that they're going to presumably build the thing. 
Right. What, what are you anticipating there? I mean, yeah, presumably, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've come out and said it's in the national interest. I mean, look, anything that we say now... Do you is think they're scared? I mean, there's an, an election coming up in the fall. This is tricky politics on this thing. Do you detect any kind of foot dragging that maybe they want to... Let's go back to Chris Sims. Chris, do you think they're going to delay this thing? Or do you think Trudeau... I, th- I think if Trudeau was smart, he would come out right now and say, I'm all in, the, in on this pipeline just like I said I would. We've approved it. We're putting shovels in the ground right now. That would be smart, um, but I think... I think it's good politics for him. It is good politics, but we have to wonder why it's taken so long. Yeah. Why did it get to the point where he dragged his feet for about four years and all of a sudden bought this pipeline with taxpayers' money? We yeah. had a corporation saying, here's some money. We'll pay for it. Help yeah. us. We're going to twin this pipeline. We own it. It's our responsibility. We're going to pay people for it. And they dragged their feet and ragged the puck for so long that the corporation threw its hands in the air and said here you leave it and now we're owning the darn thing we don't want taxpayers to own this thing and so you know it's but it is what it is right so we so what is your message to trudeau let's get going on this let's get her done let's get her done (laughs) get her just like they say in alberta right get her done my guests are chris sims and franco terrazano from the canadian taxpayers federation they say that we're leaving a lot of money on the table by not approving and building these pipelines. Lots of tax revenue flows to government as a result of these projects. You can use it for good things like schools and hospitals. What do you think of that argument? 604-280-9898 is the number to call on the open line. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to Derek in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Derek. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Sure. At first, I was against the pipelines, but now the way they're shipping it through the rails and stuff, we've got to get that thing started and twin because uh, when we had BC Rail, the biggest trains here were our 99 cars. Now they're running at 120 cars per train, and it's just getting more and more dangerous to ship that stuff by rail. There's more incidents that are going to happen on the rail lines than there would on a pipeline, guaranteed. Thank you for the call. Franco. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and so I think when we we talk about the pipeline discussion, another thing that we need to talk about, it's not like we just don't have a pipeline and then all oil consumption is is done, right? Like, so for yeah. example, like if we're making it hard to get pipelines built, what happens? Well, then there's an increase in, in rail cars, right? Yeah. Or if we limit what we can produce and sell in Canada, it's not like global oil demand just goes away like that, right? Like oil's going to be around for quite some time. So then we all have to ask ourselves an important question. I mean, like where should the oil be produced? And where should jobs be created? I mean, do you, in places like Canada, or I mean, there's there's many other regimes like Saudi Arabia, like Russia. I mean, I, we just need to understand that just because we're blocking pipeline, because we're blocking development, doesn't mean oil consumption is going away. Yeah, and if you take a look at the uh, the route of these train tracks going down the Fraser Valley or whatever, a lot of quite often is built right by the river. So you know, if you get a derailment and uh, an oil car is falling into the Fraser River or some other river. I mean, you got a a catastrophe there. Now, people who are opposed to this pipeline, of course, though, Chris would say, yeah, but that's a heck of a lot different from uh, a massive catastrophic tanker disaster in a marine environment. 
and, well, and you can't clean this stuff up. Well, it's hard to say, right? Because there's so much money now being put into making sure that these things are safe. And really, we can't kid ourselves. I mean, look off the coast of Vancouver. It is full of barges and massive vessels, uh, tour boat boats, you name it. It's not as if we've just arrived on the planet and we suddenly yeah. want to start using uh, industrial-sized ships. This has been going on for a long, long time. And as we've seen time and again by outside industry, they say that shipping it by pipeline is much, much safer than shipping what it about, by rail. What about climate change, though? I mean, Alberta's on fire right now. And we've got, we had smoke hanging over Vancouver the other day from wildfires in Alberta. It's only June. Well, let's, yeah, let's talk about climate change. And, right. and whenever we talk about the environment, I mean, you have to think about local considerations, but to, to the point that we just kind of made, it's not, climate change is not just a local issue. Climate change is a global issue. Yeah. And when we look at um, oil consumption, we look at um, trends. I mean, oil is not going anywhere anytime soon, or at least not in the immediate foreseeable future. Right. So it brings us back to that question is, is when we think about climate change, we think about a global issue. Well, how do we address a global issue? Do we address the issue by shooting ourselves in the foot? I, I would say no. Yeah. I would say no. I, at least when it comes to oil, one of the ways that we can work is, is so that we're not shooting ourselves in the foot, so that we can build pipelines and reach foreign customers. What do you think of this new government you got in Alberta? You're the Alberta director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. You got Jason Kenney as the new premier, United Conservative uh, government. I, I'm sure you guys are happier with them than you were with the new Democrats. But what are your thoughts and hopes for this government? Well, from a taxpayer perspective, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, promises that they put on the table that that look good, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we've been uh, th the leading opponent against the carbon tax, right? We yeah. saw what just happened; they scrapped the carbon tax. We've been pushing for them to reduce the business tax rate to eight percent for years. The previous a previous government promised that never fo followed through with that. So so that looks good too. But now here's one thing: when we're talking about the UCP, but we need them to focus on cutting spending. And we're going to be pushing them on that. Like, um, our our budget is an absolute mess, and we spend a lot more money per person than other comparable provinces. And the UCP is going to be coming in after more than a decade of runaway spending. What's the deficit in Alberta these days? Well, the operational deficit, um, it's I mean, it's 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 getting quite big, right? We're, we're talking, yeah, we're talking over five billion dollars. What is for the, the what operational is, deficit? What is Kenny's position on a balanced budget? Has he promised to balance the budget, or is it even possible to balance the? Yeah, Alberta no, budget? he's he's promised to balance. He's promised to balance uh, the budget, but here's the key: um, he hasn't come out and said he's going to cut overall spending levels. And so, when we're talking about taxpayer burdens, I mean, the taxation is all, all an obvious burden, but the real burden comes from spending. Right. When the government spends, you have to pay for it, whether that's through taxes or debt. So now what we need to do is cut the spending. He's coming in after the NDP jacked up spending for four years, which followed a decade of progressive conservative raising the tax or raising the spending. So that's what we need to focus on in Alberta. What do you think of the Alberta government spending a million dollars on billboards around Metro Vancouver to encourage uh, the John Horgan government to get behind this pipeline, which is kind of a pipe dream. I mean, you know, Horgan's not going to turn around and say, oh, yeah, I saw a billboard, so I'm going to support the pipeline now. Is that a good use of Alberta taxpayers' money? Well, look, I mean, it's 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 nice to have um, politicians that are supporting uh, energy development. It is, I mean, but look, we don't we don't need to have um, wasting taxpayer money um, like that. I mean, it is fantastic to have a yeah. government who is supporting who is supporting development, but I mean, Look, like you think that's a, that, you think that's a waste of money. Yeah, you okay. know, I I, I okay. wouldn't say that's a particularly great use of taxpayer dollars. Let's squeeze especially in, when there's groups like us doing it. Yeah, right. Let's squeeze in one more call here, Julia in Vancouver. Hi. Oh, hi. Um, I just want to go back briefly to something that your guest said a couple of minutes ago, yeah. and that is that he was talking about global missions. 
Um, and that's true. That's exactly what the environmentalists should be looking at. Uh, say, for example, China is uh, has got, what, about 28%, I think it is, of global emissions. Um, sure. and, and they're burning oil. Uh, they're burning coal, right? If we could okay. export Canadian oil to China, that w- they would be able to reduce their reliance on coal. Okay, that's that one of the other things. Mu- that's Thank you for- much... Thank you for the call. We have 30 seconds. Franco. Well, that's the big thing. Look, I mean, as as Canadians, we have to ask ourselves, if we want to help the environment, we want to create jobs, where should the oil be produced? In Canada or, or would you rather places like Saudi Arabia, Russia, so on and so forth? I mean, we can create jobs. We can help the environment. We can pay for more hospitals and more teachers right here at home if we have the pipeline capacity to sell our resources all over the world and at full value. Thanks for coming in, you guys. Thank you. I appreciate it a lot. That is Franco... Terrazano, he is the Alberta Director of Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Chris Sims. She's the BC Director uh, in Victoria today. One of the stories we're following today is the report on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. This was a three-year-long inquiry, dozens of community meetings and testimony from over 2,000 people. The inquiry has now reported out. It's a 1,200-page report with 231 recommendations. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been responding to this report today. Here's a little of what he had to say. For many decades, Indigenous women and girls across Canada have disappeared, suffered violence, or been killed, and our justice system has failed them. Sadly, this is not simply a relic of our past. To this day, the safety, security, and dignity of Indigenous mothers, daughters, sisters, and friends are routinely threatened. Time and again, we have heard of their disappearance, violence, or even death being labeled low priority or ignored. We have heard of their human rights being consistently and systematically violated. It is shameful, it is absolutely unacceptable, and it must end. As Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking this morning and responding to the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women report, the Chief Commissioner Marion Buller also speaking today. She had words of advice for people looking to move forward. And for all Canadians, we have calls for justice for you too. And I'm just going to name a few of them. First, read our report. Speak out against racism, sexism, and misogyny. Hold governments to account. And decolonize yourself by learning about Indigenous peoples and the true history of Canada. In conclusion, the steps to end and redress this genocide must be no less monumental than the combination of systems and actions 
that have worked to maintain colonial violence for generations. A permanent commitment to ending the genocide requires addressing the four pathways that we have explored in our report. First, the historical, multi-generational, and international, or sorry, intergenerational, probably international now too, trauma. Second, social and economic marginalization. Third, maintaining status quo and lack of institutional will. And finally, our last pathway, ignoring the agency and the expertise of Indigenous women and girls and to us LGBTQ people. All right, that is Marion Baller, Chief Commissioner for the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Commission. Let's check in now with Lori Campbell, the Director of the Waterloo Indigenous Education Center, St. Paul's University College. Hi, thanks for coming on. Hi, thank you for having me, Mike. What's the significance of this inquiry in your mind? Oh, yeah, I think that's, you know, pretty multifaceted. Um, of course, the inquiry was one of the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2015. And um, I think the inquiry overall, it was an opportunity for victims and families to tell their truth and, and to share their truth with the rest of Canada and to ensure that, you know, Canadians heard what uh, has been known in Indigenous families and communities for generations. Um, I think that being said, it's, it's important to know that although the truths um, that were shared during the inquiry, like the truths shared during the TRC, they may be new to the rest of Canadians, but they aren't really new to Indigenous peoples. Um, what's hopeful, you know, what I'm hopeful about is that the rest of Canada will hear the truths and, and then take action based on the 231 calls to justice that were formulated. Do you think that'll happen? I mean, do you think the conclusion of this inquiry is a step that brings people closer together or gets closer to that achieving that goal of reconciliation? Yeah, well, you know, I think it, 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 you know, it just really depends on what people are willing to do, right? Because the inquiry and, and, and the truths that are out there is one thing, but if people aren't uh, willing or interested in taking action based on the calls to justice, then, um, then you know, no, it, it probably will actually move us and, and divide us further in this country. But, um, you know, like Marion Bueller said, like the, you know, the final section of the calls to justice is, is for all Canadians. And, and there's some, you know, pretty basic things that we can do on an individual basis, whether, you know, it's just within ourselves or having conversation at our supper tables, you know, like speaking out against violence against Indigenous women, girls, and uh, 2S LGBTQIA people. And, you know, those are some pretty simple things that uh, you think, you know, as Canadians, we would want to do. What did you think of the commissioner's uh, use of this word genocide, which uh, some people have been seizing on today? And a lot of people noticed that in Justin Trudeau's uh, remarks, he did not uh, repeat that word genocide. Uh, do you think that's, a, think that's an appropriate word to call this? Um, well, so I wasn't, you know, directly involved in, in the inquiry. So I, I want to yeah. be clear about that. And, and you know, there were um, uh, several, uh, well, thousands of people, really, essentially, between the victims and families and, and experts and, and the uh, 15 community consultations. Um, there were lots of people that, uh, you know, directly participated in this. And I think it would be, um, you know, wrong for us to, you know, sort of decide that all of that work that was put into there and with the commission that was put in place to... Um, 
you know, sort of tell them they're wrong about what it is that, you know, the conclusion they came to. And I think, you know, Marion Bueller stated, you know, she made this one statement and, and I, I wrote it down because it was just, it just encompassed everything that, you know, it, she said, the significant, persistent and deliberate pattern of systemic racial and gendered human and Indigenous rights violations and abuses perpetuated historically and maintained today by the Canadian state designed to displace Indigenous peoples from their lands, social structures and governance and to eradicate their existence as nations, communities, families and individuals is the cause of the disappearances, murders and violence experienced by Indigenous women, girls um, and people. And this is genocide. And so this is this is the framework that they use to identify genocide. And in the okay. summary re- report, they did two pages of, of really speaking clearly about genocide and, and, and basing it in research of what um, what the parameters are of what defines genocide. So I think, you know, I think we need to go with that. All right. Well, Laurie, thanks for coming on today with your perspective. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Laurie Campbell, a Waterloo Indigenous Education Center. Appreciate her time today. Let's return to that breaking story today, and that's the release of this report on the transition to a local police force in the city of Surrey. Remember that Mayor Doug McCallum said he would get rid of the RCMP, bring in a local police force instead. This is a long-awaited report. It is out now. Let's check in now with Janet Brown, Global News Radio senior reporter. Hey, Janet. Hello, Mike. Yes, the report has finally come out. It came out just shortly after 1 p.m., and it is long. It's nearly 200 pages, and I'm just starting to go through it. But as you and I had talked not very long ago, we now have the financials in terms of moving from the RCMP to a Surrey police force. And let's keep in mind, too, this has not been approved yet. This is just right. the report that is going has gone from the city of Surrey to the province, the Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. He has not approved it. He still has to approve this. Okay, so let's drill down into parts of this report. It says, the transition financial projections. The operating costs in the year 2021 for the Surrey-operated model of the Surrey Police Department, $192.5 million. Annual cost increase, 10.9%. The mayor all along said the increase would be 10%. It's 11%. Operating costs in 2021, RCMP contracted $173.6 million. Those are the numbers as we have them right now in terms of the financials. Now let's drill down, Mike, into some of the staffing numbers. Okay. Here we go. It is calling for a 5% increase. The report is calling for a 5% increase in staff overall, a 16% increase in frontline officers, a 29% increase in school liaison and youth officers. Boiled down, Mike, this means 805 police officers and 20 community safety officers. Right now, Surrey RCMP has 843 sworn members. So clearly this is less, but it's also really important to keep in mind that a new police chief may come in and decide, you know, 805 officers is not enough to police the city. He may decide he needs more. Then if that's the case, he would have to go to his new police board and seek approval for the hiring of more officers. The report is also calling, Mike, for the hiring of 20 community safety officers. And um, these officers, the report says, will, quote, take on a lower priority, lower risk, and lower complexity policing tasks 
in order to better leverage frontline sworn resources. Hmm. Will that mean um, they're carrying guns? Will this mean these are bylaw officers moved up to these community safety officer positions? I don't know. I don't have those details right now. Uh, In terms of civilian positions, because, of course, it takes a lot of civilians to keep the police department and the RCMP afloat, uh, the report is calling for 325 civilian positions. Right now, Surrey RCMP has 300 civilian positions, so that's an increase of 25. And I'm just sort of glancing over the report. The report says 84%. Now, this is interesting. The report says 84% of Surrey Police Department officers will be constables. 84% will be constables. So, presumably, uh, new recruits are fairly new recruits, fairly inexperienced, and more than 64% of all sworn members will deploy in uniform and interact with the public on a regular basis. 64%. And interacting and deploying in uniform, interacting with the public, to me, I'm just reading between the lines, but that means more boots on the ground, more officers walking the beat on the sidewalk in our community. I'm I'm just assuming that and guessing that, Mike, because for many years, uh, including Councillor Doug Elford, before he was a city councillor, he always called for more boots on the ground. He thought that would help to reduce the gang violence that was taking place in the city of Surrey. So maybe that's what that means, more officers uh, walking throughout the neighbourhoods. But it's interesting, too, 84% will be constables. So constables, as we know, are paid less than staff sergeants or detectives or sergeants. So maybe that's why uh, they are able to keep the cost down to 11%. Don't know. But as I say, Mike, I'm just getting the report, and I'm just at the beginning of it and reading through it. So we will have more details. Uh, Mike, as the afternoon wears on, of course. For sure. I mean, we're analyzing this thing on the fly. It has just come out and we're bringing this to you as we see it ourselves. And there is some kind of funky math in here that people are going to have to crunch some of these numbers because, like you said, Janet, I mean, they're talking about uh, 800 uh, and 800 and uh, how many officers? 805. 805 officers, and we have 843 RCMP right now. Uh, How do they spin that as 16% more frontline officers? Is that because maybe a lot of them will be constables, like you said, and be sort of walk on the front line, walking a beat or driving a beat? Yeah, I I was trying to rationalize that in my head, too. How could there be an increase of frontline officers when there will be actually fewer officers or numbers? I don't know. Uh, Mike, I'm just scrolling through as you were talking, too, just to give our listeners uh, a bit more information, uh, more financial information. Headline, investments between... 2019 to 2022, recruitment and equipment, new staffing, $12 million. IT systems and facilities, uh, $7.6 million. And we were told before that they will need a whole new IT system. Uh, vehicle transition, so, you know, getting rid of the RCMP cruisers, bringing in the new SPD vehicles, $0.4 million. 4 So are they going to be taking some of those RCMP vehicles and, you know, taking off the old decals, putting on new ones? (laughs) Yeah. 0.4 million doesn't seem like a lot for vehicle transition. So I'm assuming that's what's going to happen. Okay. Uh, And uh, phased staff transition this year, 3.3 million. Uh, 2020, nearly 9 million. 
2021, $7 million, and 2022, $0.3 million. Okay. So I know those are a lot of numbers coming at everybody. It's hard to, you know, sort it all out in your head, but I'm just throwing it out there as, a, as I'm getting the report now, Mike. And okay. as I say, we will have more details as the afternoon wears on. Thank you very much, Janet. I know you got a busy afternoon ahead as you go through this report. That's Janet Brown, Global News Reporter, Senior, uh, re- senior Reporter on uh, this just-breaking story with this report out from the city of Surrey on a new police force.